0: Hello, and welcome to Learning by Literary Audiophiles, or Learning Be Lit AF. My name is Theoden Humphrey. I'm a high school English teacher, just a few weeks into my 21st year as a teacher, though still only my 20th in the classroom, because right now, I'm not teaching in a classroom, I'm teaching online. I'm not here to vent about this, that's a whole different podcast, but take it from me if you're not experiencing it yourself as a parent, or student, or educator. It's a lot. There is a great need to get things back to normal and to push hard to make sure students get back on track and do not lose out on learning. But that push is a Sisyphean task. I, and everyone else involved, are pushing an enormous boulder of stress and anxiety and cognitive tasks that are difficult in the best of times, up the hill of the pandemic and the current state of the world. Actually. It's a pretty good visual to think of those countless charts of increasing COVID-19 cases and think of that as the slope we're trying to climb. It would be a whole lot easier to do if we were going downhill. Though then we'd probably lose control completely and fall off the cliff. And right now it feels like we'll never get to the top of that hill. It feels like the boulder is going to roll back over us all the way down to the bottom. I'm trying really hard not to say that students are the boulder I'm trying to push up the hill. You know, static, unmoving, unchanging, blank, dead. Never mind. But, <laughs> no, no, they're not though. In all honesty, I don't blame them for the situation. It is not of their making. Even when they are being difficult, and I mean, students are always difficult, and more so now, it's not their fault. I have met very few students. And I've taught something like 3,000 students in three states over the last two decades. I've met very few of them who act out of malice. Mostly, they're dealing with their own pain and lashing out at others because of it. But even when they are being difficult, they're trying to be better. So as tempting as it is to call them the giant rock that I'm shoving, that's not accurate. They're pushing with me. My point is this, this podcast is intended to help with that struggle. There should be opportunities for remote learning, ways that students can get some instruction and some exposure to literature without actually staring at a screen. These should be, an easy, should be an easy resource for a teacher who's not sure what to do tomorrow in your English class. Give your students the link to one of my episodes, give them a copy of the text, tell them what you want them to do answer questions, or write down their thoughts, or critique me and list the myriad ways I got the story wrong in my interpretation. Something to do, right? And that's why these these episodes, I try to keep them between about 45 minutes and an hour, because that will pretty much fill a class, but not really go over. And if it goes over, please cut out this opening part, you don't need this. I want to help. It just so happens that doing this, reading and talking about literature, is fun for me, when I'm not worrying about, you know, getting students prepared for tests or making them learn things that they must critically know so that they can pass on to the next level or whatever. When there's no pressure, when it's just me talking at, you know, my laptop in my bedroom here, it's fun. It doesn't feel much like work. So that means that I can do this without losing my grip on my own boulder. And then maybe someone else can use this to help get their rock a little higher up their hill. To that end, I want to ask you for a favor. I want to ask you to give this podcast a rating. And if you're up to it, even give me a review on whatever platform you use to listen to this. That will help more people find the cast, and maybe it can do a little more good. Thank you very much for listening, regardless. I know that some people listen to it just because you like the stories, and maybe like hearing what I have to say. I absolutely welcome and cherish those listeners as well. Because you're the heroes who keep literature and art alive. And if there's one thing in this world, particularly in the current dystopian hellscape, that is more important than education, it's art. So, thank you, too. And if you could give me a rating and a review based just on casual listening, that would be awesome as well. Uh, a quick apology as well for people who have been following the podcast. Sorry it's been so long since my last episode. School started, you see, and so for the last three weeks I've been, just been trying to keep my head above water. I'm still doing that. <laughs> still still failing too. Still drowning. It's just that I thought doing this would help me feel better, so here I am, Sunday evening, six thirty, recording a podcast. I am still going to try to get out an episode every week or every two weeks, but I just can't promise that I can keep it up during the school. Sorry. Hopefully you can bear with me. I'm hoping this here episode will be easier for me, and therefore a good episode despite my stress and anxiety, because this is one of my all-time favorite stories. The Cask of Amontillado by Edgar Allan Poe. It is not lost on me that this story is about being buried alive. Yeah, seems fitting. So, find yourself a copy of the story, As always, I recommend looking at the words while listening to them, especially if you are using this for study. Poe is especially important to take on with all of your available tools, because his writing is both complicated and incredible. I got my copy from Project Gutenberg, because the first Google result, if you look up the Cask of Amontillado, from the Poe Museum, had typos. Typos! In Poe! Ridiculous! Anyway, gutenberg.org, G-U-T-E-N-B-E-R-G gorg i uh, I'll put a link in the, in the episode description as well. Uh, if you can, copy and paste this into an editable document, so you can then annotate on the text itself as we go through this. I'm going to read the story, then go over some vocabulary, probably quite a bit of vocabulary because, again, it's Poe, and then try to analyze what the story is really about. If you're ready, then, come with me down into the catacombs. We'll find what we're looking for. It's just a little further. Watch out for the Niter. The Cask of Amontillado by Edgar Allan Poe. The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as I best could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You, you who so well know the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length I would be avenged. This was a point definitely settled, but the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my good will. I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face... And he did not perceive that my smile now was at the thought of his immolation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato, although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared. He prided himself on his connoisseurship in wine. Few Italians have the true virtuoso spirit. For the most part, their enthusiasm is adopted to suit the time and opportunity, to practice imposture upon the British and Austrian millionaires. In painting and gemery, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack. But in the matter of old wines, he was sincere. In this respect, I did not differ from him materially. I was skillful in the Italian vintages myself, and bought largely whenever I could. It was about dusk, one evening during the supreme madness of the carnival season, that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had on a tight-fitting, party-striped dress, and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand. I said to him, My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you are looking today. But I have received a pipe of what passes for Amontillado, and I have my doubts. How? said he. Amontillado? A pipe? Impossible! And in the middle of the carnival? I have my doubts, I replied and I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado? I have my doubts. Amontillado! And I must satisfy them. Amontillado! As you are engaged, I am on my way to Lucchese. If anyone has a critical turn, it is he. He will tell me... Lucchese cannot tell Amontillado from Sherry! And yet some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. Come, let us go. Whither? To your vaults. My friend, no. I will not impose upon your good nature. I perceive you have an engagement. Lucchese... I have no engagement! Come! My friend, no. It is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. Let us go, nevertheless. The cold is merely nothing. Amontillado, you have been imposed upon. And as for Lucchese, he cannot distinguish Sherry from Amontillado. Thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself of my arm. Putting on a mask of black silk and drawing a roclair closely about my person, I suffered him to hurry me to my palazzo. There were no attendants at home. They had absconded to make merry in honor of the time. I had told them that I should not return until the morning, and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance, one and all, as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux, and giving one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent, and stood together on the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresors. The gait of my friend was unsteady, and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. The pipe? said he. It is farther on, said I. But observe the white web-work which gleams from these cavern walls. He turned towards me and looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the room of intoxication. "Nighter?" he asked at length. "Nighter," I replied. "How long have you had that cough?" <coughs> My poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. "'It is nothing!' he said at last. "'Come,' I said with decision. "'We will go back. "'Your health is precious. "'You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. "'You are happy as once I was.' "'You are a man to be missed. "'For me it is no matter. "'We will go back. "'You will be ill, and I cannot be responsible. "'Besides, there Lucesi.
1: "'Enough!'
0: he said. "'The cough is a mere nothing. "'It will not kill me. "'I shall not die of a cough.' "'True. "'True,' I replied. And indeed, I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily, but you should use all proper caution. A draught of this medoc will defend us from the damps. Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mold. Drink, I said, presenting him the wine. He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and... "'nodded to me familiarly while his bells jingled. "'I drink,' he said, "'to the buried that repose around us, "'and I to your long life.' "'He again took my arm, and we proceeded. "'These vaults,' he said, "'are extensive. "'The Montresors,' I replied, "'were a great and numerous family.' I forget your arms. A huge human foot door in a field azure. The foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto? Nemo me impune lacessit." Good, he said. The wine sparkled in his eyes and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the medoc. We had passed through walls of piled bones, with casks and puncheons intermingling into the inmost recesses of catacombs. I paused again, and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. The niter, I said. See, it increases. It hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the Bones, come, we will go back, ere it is too late, your cough. It is nothing, he said. Let us go on. But first, another draft of the Madoc. I broke and reached him a flagon of de Grave. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upwards with a gesticulation I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the movement, a grotesque one. "'You do not comprehend?' he said. "'Not I,' I replied. "'Then you are not of the Brotherhood?' "'How?' "'You are not of the Masons?' "'Yes, yes,' I said. "'Yes, yes.' "'You? Impossible! A Mason?' "'A Mason,' I replied.' A sign, he said, a sign! It is this, I answered, producing a trowel from beneath the folds of my Rauclair. You jest, he exclaimed, recoiling a few paces. But let us proceed to the Demontiado. Be it so, I said, replacing the tool beneath the cloak and again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and descending again, arrived at a deep crypt, in which the foulness of the air caused our flambeau rather to glow than flame. At the most remote end of the crypt there appeared another, less spacious, Its walls had been lined with human remains, piled to the vault overhead, in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. Three sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth side, the bones had been thrown down, and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mound of some size. Within the wall thus exposed, by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior recess, in depth about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no especial use within itself, but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roof of the catacombs, and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavored to pry into the depth of the recess. Its termination the feeble light did not enable us to see. Proceed, I said. Herein is the Amontillado. As for Lucchesi. "'He is an ignoramus,' interrupted my friend, as he stepped unsteadily forward, while I followed immediately at his heels. In an instant he had reached the extremity of the niche, and finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more, and I had fettered him to the granite.' In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was too much astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. "'Pass your hand,' I said, over the wall. "'You cannot help feeling the niter. "'Indeed, it is very damp.' Once more, let me implore you to return. No? Then I must positively leave you. But I must first render you all the little attentions in my power. The Amontillado? ejaculated my friend, not yet recovered from his astonishment. True, I replied. The Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among the pile of bones of which I have before spoken. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar. With these materials and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of the masonry when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had, in a great measure, worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was a low, moaning cry from the depth of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long and obstinate silence. I laid the second tier and the third, and the fourth. And then I heard the furious vibrations of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes, during which that I might hearken to it with the more satisfaction. I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bones. When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel, and finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused and, holding the flambeau over the mason work, threw a few feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams, bursting suddenly from the throat of the chained form, seemed to thrust me violently back. For a brief moment, I hesitated. I trembled. Unsheathing my rapier, I began to grope with it about the recess, but the thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied. I reapproached the wall. I replied to the yells of him who clamored. I reechoed. I aided. I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this. And the clamorer grew still. It was now midnight, and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tier. I had finished a portion of the last and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. But now there came from out the niche a low laugh that erected the hairs upon my head. It was succeeded by a sad voice, which I had difficulty in recognizing as that of the noble Fortunato. The voice said, <laughs> A very good joke indeed, an an excellent jest. We shall have many a rich laugh about it at the palazzo, (laughs) over our wine. (laughs) The Amontillado, I said. (laughs) Yes, the the Amontillado. But is, is it not getting late Will not they be awaiting us at the Palazzo, the Lady Fortunato, and the rest? Let us be gone. Yes, I said. Let us be gone. For the love of God, Montresor! Yes, I said. For the love of God. But to these words I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud. Fortunato! No answer. I called again. Fortunato! No answer still. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in reply only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick on account of the dampness of the catacombs. I hastened to make an end of my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry, I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the half of a century, no mortal has disturbed them. In pace requiescat. Okay, there you go. Cask of Amontillado. All right, vocabulary. Precluded means prevented from happening, made impossible. Made something impossible so that it couldn't happen. Impunity is exemption from punishment or freedom from the injurious consequences of an action. Redress is to remedy or set right an undesirable or unfair situation. Retribution is punishment inflicted on someone as vengeance for a wrong or criminal act. Immolation is to kill or offer as a sacrifice, especially by burning. It means total and absolute destruction. Connoisseurship is the state of being an expert judge in matters of taste. Virtuoso is a person highly skilled in music or another artistic pursuit. Gemery is the scientific knowledge of gems. It's an obscure term. It's a, an archaic term now. Accosted means approach and address someone boldly or aggressively. So, you know, confront them, run up to them, sort of. Motley is incongruously varied in appearance or character, disparate. So in terms of dress, it's uh, like a whole bunch of different pieces of cloth or different elements of clothing that are that don't really go together very well. So, you know, just a bunch of rags maybe, but in this case, it's probably nicer than that. It's just a bunch of pieces of cloth of different patterns and colors that don't match, that don't go together well. Surmounted means overcome a difficulty or obstacle, or it also means to stand or be placed on top of. So that's describing his costume it's surmounted by this. Niter is potassium nitrate, which is a white crystalline salt that accrues where water seeps slowly through rock, such as in underground caverns. A roclair is a knee-length cloak worn especially in the 18th and 19th centuries. Palazzo is Italian for palace, so a palatial building especially in Italy. Absconded means leave hurriedly and secretly, typically to avoid detection or of or arrest for an unlawful action such as theft. It's interesting that this is used to describe the servants, so, right? So it's like they're stealing themselves away, like they're stealing time from mantras or their master. Uh, explicit is stated clearly and in detail, leaving no room for confusion or doubt. Sconces are candle holders that are attached to the wall with an ornamental bracket. Flambeaux are flaming torches, especially one made of several thick wicks dipped in wax. Uh, or a large candlestick with several branches, but here we're talking about torches because he talks about them flickering and guttering. Catacombs are an underground cemetery consisting of a subterranean gallery with recesses for tombs, as constructed by the ancient Romans. The line distilled the room of intoxication. Room, R-H-E-U-M, from uh, you've seen roomy similarly. Room is the watery fluid that collects in or drips from the nose or eyes. So mucus, essentially, it's the eye boogers, right? That dries up in the corners of your eyes when you're sick, when you're tired. Um, And then distilling is the process of taking uh, alcoholic, you know, an, an alcohol, and you boil it, essentially, so that you boil out some of the water content and you are left with a more intense alcohol. So distilling the room of intoxication is... A combination of making liquor more intense to increase the intoxication factor of it, but also it's like boiling tears to make them more, you know, to make them stronger, to make them more effective, and like you know, get rid of some of the impurities. So it's like purifying tears. It's a really fascinating line. All right. Um, draft is a single act of drinking or inhaling it also means a current of cool air in a room or other confined space so when he says a draft of this medoc he's also trying to imply this idea of there being a draft around them of cool air blowing past them because we're underground and it's all you know cold and dangerous mold probably here means soft loose earth but it's also uh, a furry fungal growth occurring typically in moist warm conditions especially on food or other organic matter you know like bodies Especially because the word molder means to slowly decay or disintegrate, especially because of neglect. So the idea is that this is loose dirt, but it might be dirt that is decayed flesh that is actually broken down all the way to earth, with also a sense of it being, you know, fungus, mold. To leer is to look or gaze in an unpleasant, malicious or lascivious way. We think of it as only lascivious, like someone with a dirty with a dirty mind, a dirty old man making a dirty look. But it's also unpleasant and malicious, which is probably the way it's used here. Uh, repose is a state of rest, sleep, or tranquility. Punchins are large wooden barrels for wine holding between seventy and one hundred and twenty gallons of wine. Recesses are small spaces created by building parts of a wall further back from the rest. A flagon is a large container in which drink is served, typically with a handle and spout. It's also a size of bottle of wine. It's about two liters. Gesticulation is a gesture, especially a dramatic one, used instead of speaking or to emphasize one's words. Grotesque means incongruous or inappropriate to a shocking degree. A trowel is a small handheld tool with a flat pointed blade used to apply and spread mortar or plaster. Promiscuously. Uh, promiscuous is from the early 17th century. Uh, Middle English word from the early 17th century. It, comes from, it means indiscriminate in Latin. Um, the early sense of it before it got the sense that we use now. Originally it meant consisting of elements mixed together, giving rise to indiscriminate and undiscriminating, which leads to the notion of casual. so you have things that are kind of just casually strewn around elements that are mixed together and this is used to describe the bones scattered over the floor. Uh, circumscribing is restricting something within limits draw a circle around something that's circumscribe right circum for circle and scribe for right. Ignoramus is an ignorant or stupid person. A niche is a shallow recess, especially one on a wall to display a statue or other ornament. Notice that it's for display, and that's what he locks Fortunato into. Implore is to beg someone earnestly or desperately to do something. Ejaculated, of course it means what you think it means, but also it means to say something quickly and suddenly. So to burst out words, and that's how it's used here. Obstinate is stubbornly refusing to change one's opinion or chosen course of action, especially uh, despite attempts to persuade one to do so. So, not listening to someone. Although it's interesting here, it's used to describe an obstinate silence, so it's like he wants something from the silence which he's not getting, and the silence is being stubborn and not giving him what he wants. To hearken is to listen closely. Clamored is usually used of a group of people to shout loudly and insistently. A jest is a thing said or done for amusement, a joke. An aperture is an opening hole or gap. And the words in pace requiescat is Latin for rest in peace. Usually it's requiescat in pace, which is R-I-P, rip. Okay, now let's talk about the story. Now, normally I teach this story really, really carefully because I use this one in my AP literature class as an example of the use of diction, because one of the interesting things about Poe and Poe is one of the best examples of this is that Edgar Allan Poe believed and wrote that an author should craft every single word of a story of a poem of a piece of literature to help create the tone that the author is trying to create. and he did this himself. These these stories were incredibly carefully crafted so that everywhere he's got a choice of words, he chooses a word that helps to create the mood that he's trying to build. And since he was trying to often build creepy moods, he chooses creepy words. And I mean, it's even words that you wouldn't necessarily think would be creepy, but they are. If you think back to like mold, the way he uses mold, or the the something as simple as the name of the wine that he, that, that, Montresor gives Fortunato is de Grave. I'm assuming that's how it's pronounced. But you look at it, you look at it written down and it's de Grave. It's Grave Wine. And the casks of wine are scattered in among the bones of his family. I mean, this whole thing is just such a creepy image. It's such a scary, ominous tone that... I mean, everything in there goes to that. So you can almost take this apart word by word and talk about every single word that he chooses. So normally I try and do that. Um, It's honestly worth doing if you have the time to look at because really, it's just, Poe's so good at this. Uh, But of course, we're trying to keep this under an hour. So I'll try to hurry through this. Uh, Okay, so the real point here, the real question about the story is of course, why does this guy do this? right? I mean, the easy answer is that he's insane. Poe often wrote about insanity. He, he, writes, he writes a number of stories, The Black Cat and The Telltale Heart, that are about murderers who just lose their minds and commit murders because of that. But in both those cases, for instance, and there are others too, but in both those cases, The Black Cat and The Telltale Heart, the murder itself is done on the spur of the moment, essentially. I mean, The Telltale Heart kind of not, but that guy's more clearly insane. This one is 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 cold it's revenge is a best is just best served cold right so it's this question of why is this guy montresor so determined to take revenge upon fortunato and it's great because it's not clear we don't really know but to set up the apparent story um We start, the first sentence is, The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as I best could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. So, there you go. It is, that Fortunato went too far, pushed him to requiring, you know, payback, because he insulted him. Uh, But, this can't be true, right? I mean, it's exaggerated, of course, the thousand injuries of Fortunato. Fortunato has not done a thousand injuries to this man. They appear to be friends. Fortunato thinks he's his friend. And that's the other thing if he ventured upon insult, if he actually said something that would require, you know, a challenge like a duel or vengeance or something, Fortunato would know it. He doesn't know it. He completely trusts Montresor, And that's the whole buildup of the story here is that perfect bond of trust. So it, it simply can't be true that this actually happened this way, in such a way that a rational person, I mean, albeit, you know, a vengeful person, but still a rational person, would see this as uh, a reasonable response to what Fortunato's done. So what that tells us is, I mean, as not from the first sentence, but as we go through the story, we realize that this is essentially in Montresor's head. It's not really anything Fortunato did. It's something else. And that's the real question. Why does he do it? What is this? What is this guy really trying to achieve? What's his real goal? Okay, so then, that's the first sentence, and it sets us up. And we notice that, and it's a powerfully put sentence, so we don't notice the second sentence. But the second sentence is fascinating, because it gives us an audience. It says, you, who so well know the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. And then he goes back into like his descriptions of his, of his revenge. But who is you? Who is this story told to? It's told in the first person. Montrador is, is reciting his own story, telling what he did. And it's to an audience, a specific audience, a specific you. And it's, here's the thing. You who so well know the nature of my soul. So it's not a random you. And it's not this audience, us, who are actually reading the story because we don't know the nature of his soul. It's somebody that actually knows him. So who is it? Who is he telling this story to? Uh, if you think about the very end of the story, he says that no one disturbed Montresor's bones for, or disturbed Fortunato's bones for 50 years, for half a century. So this is 50 years after the fact. And he's an adult when he does this thing. So this is essentially a deathbed confession, right? He's an old man now telling this story of what he did to somebody that knows him well. So who is he telling the story to? I have a theory. We'll get to it at the end. Anyway, so... But he does give us the theme of, you know, what he's, what he's trying to do here. The theme of what he's trying to do here is this idea that um, I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. So if you pay somebody back, but you suffer because you, you know, get your revenge, then that's not really revenge. That's not fixing the wrong. It's not right and the wrong. Um, and it's equally unaddressed when the Avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. And that's another part of this that's going to come back come back up at the very end of this, in my theory. Um, so, you have to punish the person, you have to do it so that they know you're doing it, and then you have to get away with it. That's what it takes to make revenge. Okay, and so if we take this on the surface, that's the story here. It's a story of revenge. But, um and then there's all these elements of like dramatic irony of, of just irony in general, where, um, Montresor is smiling at Fortunato and Fortunato doesn't understand that the real smile is actually this evil smile. And inside Montresor is saying, you sucker, you sucker. And this whole story is that this facade of friend with behind it, this, you know, true self that is seeking revenge. Um, you know, there's some interesting points about, like, uh, Montresor mocking Fortunato for not being, uh, you know, really intelligent enough to keep up with him about wine and painting and gemery and stuff. And it's kind of interesting because he, he mocks Italians and it's like, okay, dude, but you have a palazzo in Italy and that has catacombs that are your family's catacombs. So your family has been Italian for generations and are buried underneath your your family home your family estate for generations so what the hell are you doing separating yourself from the italians um maybe he's you know montresor is a, a french name or fortunato is an italian name so maybe he's trying to distinguish himself that way um it's not clear to me that this is really an important thing for uh for poe i think poe is maybe just kind of making fun of the europeans a little bit but anyway um but then speaking of making fun of we get to the point of it being carnival right that's when he carries out his revenge. And it's put as... It's just sort of a, a random encounter, right? He says, I, I encountered my friend, and uh, I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand, Montresor says. But everything here is so carefully planned. He has designed this in every possible way. He must have picked out this day. I mean, there's a couple possible reasons, right? One is that this is a time when... Uh, Fortunato is likely to be drunk, and obviously that's a very big part of what happens here. Um, but also, Montresor has gotten rid of his servants by letting them, you know, tell them they have to stay, knowing that they will leave and go out and and party for the carnival. But it also makes sense if this is done in a symbolic way for a symbolic reason. So carnival is Mardi Gras, except it's it's bigger and longer. So it is the last festival celebration before you begin Lent, the Catholic celebration of Lent, which is. Um, a time of fasting when you give up your vices in order to you know um, it's a, a reflection of, of christ going into the into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and um, without food and water and so you uh, you're sort of fasting but not really obviously you don't do it for but for 40 days and 40 nights in lent you give up something that you normally like to do um, so if you really like chocolate you give up chocolate for 40 days and 40 nights anyway uh, but before lent starts you have the one last big hurrah where you you know if you're going to give up drink, you get really, really drunk, right? And so it's kind of fun to think that he is, you know, mm. giving up murder. He's going to go for one last murder before he gets into lead when he can't do it anymore. Um, but anyway, it's, it's a celebration of life before, like, a time of quiet contemplation. And so you can see the parallels here in what he's doing with what he's going to do to Fortunato right, with the carnival. The carnival is kind of like this last hurrah before silence. And there's what happens to to Fortunato. So it's very intentional. But also, I have to wonder, like, did he know that Fortunato would be dressed this way? Because Fortunato was dressed like a clown, like a jester. He's wearing a, he's wearing motley, which is, you know, um, the Harlequin, he's dressed like the Harlequin, which is one of the characters from the Commedia dell'arte, which is the classic play uh, put on every year during um, Carnival. And so that's sort of, you know, thats that makes me wonder if Fortunato always dresses this way at Carnival, and Montresor knows it, and he's taking advantage of this because he likes the idea of Fortunato being dressed like a clown. It's the whole thing about he's mocking him, and it fits really well. Um, I mean, he's actually got like a... a a, a clown's hat, a conical cap, a dunce cap with bells on the top, which becomes really like gruesomely ironic at the end of this. Okay, anyway, um, so we can see how eager Montresor is to get right to his point because his first sentences, first two sentences are it's so nice to meet. You. you're so luckily you met how remarkably well you are looking. By the way, I got this big barrel, a pipe, a pipe is a really large barrel of wine. it's some like, ungodly amount of 200 gallons of wine or some ridiculous thing like that of what passes for an amontillado and amontillado is a spanish sherry it's very expensive and very fine quality um, that's the second sentence or his, his third sentence right the second thing he says after meeting this guy is i received a pipe of what passes for amontillado and i have my doubts but it works perfectly right he draws fortunato in um, but All the way from the beginning, all the way from this very first conversation, there are hints throughout this that Montresor drops that he doesn't have Fortunato's best interests in mind, right? Uh, That he's suckering him. Uh, The first one here is when he says, uh, I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Okay, wait a second. If you paid the full Amontillado price for this wine... What bargain were you fearful of losing? There's no bargain there. You paid full price for the stuff. But, of course, Fortunato does not, j- does not notice this because he is drunk and he is fascinated by the idea of Amontillado. And, of course, the last thing, the important one, is that Montresor is saying, you're the guy who can determine if this is Amontillado. You are the expert. You are the connoisseur of wine. You're the only one who can taste my wine for me. But then, to get Fortunato to do what he wants, he messes with him, right? He pulls this, so I'm going to go see Lucchese. Lucchese can tell me about Amontillado. And Fortunato is just offended by this and instantly says, let's go, I gotta taste the wine, I'm going with you. Because I can't stand the thought that Lucchese will be the expert rather than me. So what is this? This is pride. Montresor takes advantage of Fortunato's pride to sucker him, to lure him down into the catacombs and kill him. It is Fortunato's pride that takes him all the way down. And the entire time, Montresor keeps poking him over and over and over again. Right? As soon as... Fortunato says, let's go. Let's go to your vaults. He says, my friend, which of course is ironic. My friend, no, I will not impose upon your good nature. You have an engagement. Lucchese, he throws in Lucchese again, right? Knowing that that's going to make Fortunato respond in a prideful way, not wanting to allow Monter to go get Lucchese. So he says, no, nope, I don't have an engagement. I mean, of course he does. He's a rich man. It's carnival. He's dressed in a costume. He's going to a party. Or he's going to meet somebody. That's where he's going. But forget that. That doesn't matter. I've got to go taste the wine. I've got to be the guy that tastes the wine. But Montresor pushes again. No, no. Not the engagement. It's the cold that I see you have. The vaults are incredibly damp. They are encrusted with nitre. And he says no. Right? Two reasons. I can't stand Lucchese doing it, but also the cold is merely nothing. Right, he's He's got to be too... I mean you got to be a man, right? You can't say that, no, my cold is going to keep me from doing this thing. you to got to man up. So he mans up. And there's maybe a hint there um, in, that, in that little paragraph because Fortunato says to Montresor, you have been imposed upon, which implies that Montresor got suckered. And so there's, there's maybe an element there of uh, a potential insult. But here we can see... Like, if this is what Montresor sees as an insult, if he does see it that way, um, and I'm saying that he might see it as an insult because uh, the next paragraph is, thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself of my arm, which sounds like Fortunato is, you know, grabbing him, and it's it's not a welcome touch. Like, he's he's imposing, he's pushing. Fortunato is, is grabbing something that he doesn't have a right to grab. And then... He says, putting on a mask of black silk and drawing real closely about my person. I suffered him to hurry me to my palazzo. So there's irritation in that paragraph from Montresor. And so maybe when um, Fortunato says, you have been imposed upon, right? Because that implies that Montresor got tricked, that Montresor has been fooled, that somebody played him for a fool. And that is where Montresor sees insult. So the point is... It is Fortunato's pride that makes him go down there, but it is Montresor's pride, it seems, that makes him take Fortunato down there. So that's what the story seems to really be about—the really strong theme of pride. Okay. All right. So uh, they go there. There's this interesting line about he he told his servants they had to stay, knowing that, that would make them go, and so it's got it's it's both kind of a clever joke, but also. It shows that he plans that people will be deceptive. He expects people to be liars and cheaters, and he takes uses that to his advantage. So maybe that tells us something about Monster as well. Um, we see as far as we go down into this because okay, there are memes now about the story about the most ridiculous part of the story, which is how far they walk. Through the house, I bowed in through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. Then we passed down a long and winding staircase. We came at length to the foot of the descent, and there we are in the catacombs. And this is, you know, like six pages before the end of the story. So on and on and on we go where they go through the catacombs and just further and further and further, deeper and deeper, until finally the air is bad. That's how far they finally go. And the joke is... Why does Fortunato go this far with Montresor? Why doesn't he figure this out? Why does he get suckered this badly? Why is he this stupid? And that's the point. Partly, of course, because he's drunk. Partly, at least from Montresor's point of view, is that Fortunato is that stupid. Um, But if we see this whole story as being about pride, then that's what makes him stupid. It's Fortunato's pride. He's not going to give up and say, this is too far to walk, I can't stand to do this, because again, he's got a man up, he can't seem like he's weak, and then he's got to be the guy. He's got to be the one that goes down and tastes the Amontillado and tells whether it is actually what it's supposed to be. Um, also realize, he doesn't believe it's Amontillado, and so if he tastes it and knows that it's not, then he maybe gets to prove that Montresor was wrong, that Montresor got suckered. And if you imagine that they've been having some kind of rivalry over their connoisseurship of wine, which Montador says that he also likes and knows a lot about wine like Fortunato does, then this is Fortunato trying to one-up him, which again, pride. So, yeah, we start seeing here how far they're going to go and how drunk um, Fortunato is the entire time, because right here, um, his gait is unsteady and he's, you know... This is where you get that wonderful line about he looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the room of intoxication. So he's already just completely drunk, completely smashed. And here is Montresor poking him some more, right? Oh, look, look at the niter. Look at all the cold. Look at all the damp. Look at how much danger you are in. And then I love he says, how long have you had that cough? And That's right, when Fortunato coughs um, over and over and over again. He can't reply for many minutes. So it's really a severe cough. But then he ends with, it is nothing. There you go. Manly. Proud. And then this great paragraph, right, where Montresor says, come, I said with decision, we will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy as once I was. You are a man to be missed. For me, it is no matter. Right there, we see how Montresor feels about Fortunato. He envies the hell out of him. Fortunato has everything. Montresor has, at least the way he describes it, nothing. He's lost all this stuff. He's not rich, not respected, not admired, not beloved, not happy. He is not a man to be missed. Now, I mean, he's still, you know, a man with a palazzo with catacombs. So, he's not broke. He's not destroyed. He's not ruined. He's just not as well off as Fortunato, so, what's really bothering him here? Pride. His pride is hurt that Fortunato has more than he does. He can't stand it. And then the line, we will go back, you will be ill, and I cannot be responsible. I think that's important too. And then Fortunato says, enough, This cough is a, the cough is a mere nothing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. Notice the emphasis there, the repetition. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. True. True, I replied. <laughs> so again, emphasis, repetition. Uh, Montresor knows. Fortunato will not die of a cough. Although, I mean, he kind of will, right? Because he's going to be hes going to be dying of not being able to breathe. But he's going to be suffocated. Because that, that's what's really going to happen to him. So he's not going to die from the cough. It's going to be the... the I mean, really, what's going to, you know, is going to kill him. That's how he's going to die. He's not going to die from a cough. Anyway, so I just, I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily, but you should use all proper caution. You see, he says, I don't mean to alarm you, but then he gives him another poke right then. You should use all proper caution. Like you're not doing right now, Fortunato, because you're coming down here with me, you sucker. So on and on and on. Just all these hints, all these things that he says, right? Both the dangers that um, Fortunato is in, and the you know the, the the hints all around them of what's going to end up happening to him. The hints also that Montresor is uh, upset and angry because when Fortunato says, "I drink to the buried that repose around us," uh, very respectful, very nice. Fort Montresor says, an eye to your long life, which just, oh, that's that's good irony right there. And then, so Fortunato says, these vaults are extensive. That's the closest he comes to saying that we're walking a long damn way to get to this barrel of wine. And by the way, you bought a barrel of wine of the glorious expensive wine that you wanted, you know, you said you got it for Carnival. Why did you wheel it all the way down to the very end of your catacombs, where it takes like half an hour to walk down there. How is that a good way to store your wine? And of course, that's another hint that Fortunato doesn't really pick up on to realize there's something wrong here. So when he says these vaults are extensive, Montrose says the Montresors were a great and numerous family. Right? Use that verb to show that something has happened, that they have fallen down from their former high position. And so, again, this is probably why he is jealous of Fortunato. Okay, and then there are arms. Let me talk about their arms. He says a huge... Uh, he says, uh, Fortunato says, I forget your arms, which is his coat of arms, his family's symbol, right? Symbol of their nobility. And it is a huge human foot door in a field azure that is gold. D'or is uh, French for of gold. So it's a golden human foot in an, a blue field of blue background. The foot crushes a serpent rampant. Rampant means that it's reared up, so like a cobra about to strike. The foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto is, nemo me impune lakiset, which means, nobody may strike me with impunity. Nobody may provoke me with impunity. Okay? Nobody can hurt me and get away with it. Now, and and he says, he says, good. That's what Fortunato says. Um, now it's interesting, of course, because this is the hint, the big hint. You have hurt me, says Montresor, and you're not going to get away with it. And it's my family's honor, in some level, that I'm, you know, that I'm maintaining, that I'm, I'm avenging you because of my family. Um, but you look at the the coat of arms, and the foot is crushing the serpent while the serpent bites the foot. So who's getting away with it? What I mean, the the whole his whole family coat of arms appears to be. I'll destroy myself to destroy you because you can't get away with hurting me. You cannot hurt me with impunity. So it's a fascinating image. Okay, so they go through the wild walls of piled bones, again, that we're going through the catacombs, and there's bones everywhere intermingling with the wine. And so there's this sense of like life and death at the same time in the same place. Um, he keeps saying nighter everywhere. Okay, and then there's this great moment when he gives Fortunato a bottle of wine and Fortunato makes a gesture and then Mönchner doesn't get it. And Fortunato says, you do not comprehend? And he says, then you are not of the brotherhood. You are not of the Masons. Okay, so the Masons, the Freemasons. Yes, yes, the Illuminati, the conspiracy theory. But what they really were was it started as um, uh, you know, a guild of stonemasons. And stonemasons were skilled workers who were in great very high demand, especially in the Middle Ages. And so they got very wealthy. And so it ends up being um, sort of like a, a men's club for wealthy people. And it's a place where uh, deals were made. Because who, people who were in the Masons preferred to make deals with other people who are in the Masons, right? It's a social club. And so if you're in the Masons, then you had connections and you had a great way to make wealth and to get allies wherever you went. And there are, you know, secret hand gestures and things to represent other Masons that you knew, hey, I'm a Mason, you're a Mason, let's make a deal. And Masons would do each other favors, help each other out. Like if you're in a town where you don't belong, where you don't, you know, don't know where to stay, you can stay with a fellow Mason if you identify yourself as a Mason, stuff like that. So the point of this is that Fortunato is in the in crowd. He's a Mason. Montresor is not. He doesn't understand. He's not a member of the Masons. He doesn't recognize the gesture. Um, and this is maybe a rude moment for Fortunato because he should know that. I mean, Masons belong go to a temple uh, within a certain city, and they all you know they have like meetings of the chapter, and he's never seen Montresor there. So he should know, and he should know which of the other people in the town in the city are not Masons. So it's maybe flaunting on Fortunato's part. But also, he's really drunk, and not all Masons reveal themselves. And Maybe Fortunato, or maybe Montresor, was just recently made a Mason. So it's not ridiculous. But the great part is that when he does this, Montresor says, Oh no, I'm a Mason. I'm totally a Mason. And when Fortunato says, Oh yeah, show me a sign. What's your, like, show me the secret handshake, dude. He pulls out a trowel, which is, you know, you've seen them. They're a little triangular, um, looks like a piece of pie with a handle on it. And you, you use it to scoop up mortar and then slide mortar over top of bricks. So it's an actual stone mason bricklayer's tool. And he's carrying it under his cloak. And he whips it out like, ha ha, see, I'm a mason. Now, at the end of the story, we know this is because he's going to use this thing to wall Fortunato up and kill him. But he's carrying it under his under his cloak, and he has this great chance to make this absolutely magnificent joke. Yeah, I'm a mason. Here it is. Check it out. And Fortunato doesn't get it. And the best part is that Fortunato doesn't say, Why the hell do you have that under your cloak? Why are you carrying a trowel? Why is a nobleman at Carnival just walking around with a bricklayer's trowel for no reason? He doesn't say anything about it. He just goes... Wow, that's weird. Okay, let's go try the Amontillado. Let's go get the wine. So um, at this point, we start really seeing, because he says, let us proceed to the Amontillado. And when we come to the end, it seems pretty clear that the Amontillado becomes symbolic, right? It's not its not any longer the wine or the lie that, that Montessori is using to trick Fortunato. The way it's described is it's, it's a goal in some way, right? When he says, so Fortunato says, let us proceed to the Amontillado. And Montresor says, we continued our route in search of the Amontillado. It's like the Holy Grail. It's the quest. It's something important. Um, And that's something that's probably worth thinking about and talking about and figuring out. But I'm not going to say any more about it. Right, so all the way down to the bottom of the crypt. um, Where the air is bad and then there's, you know, they go into... Like a crypt at the end of the catacombs and at the end of the crypt there's another recess I mean it's just a crypt at the end of a crypt at the end of a crypt right it's all the way down in the bottom of the earth the absolute limit of the end of the catacombs that's where he wants to bury Fortunato and again you know why doesn't he say why the hell did you keep your wine here no no he just when Montresor says yeah it's in there go step in there go on you go ahead you go first Herein is the Amontillado. And then to push him, he says, as for Lucchese. And so, it's all it takes. Fortuna goes in. Montresor chains him to the wall. um, And then has this great, like, ironic set of statements when he reveals what he's been doing. And he says, oh, look, touch the wall. The wall is very damp. Oh, let me implore you to return. No? Well, then I'll have to leave you. Let me just do you a little favor. And then again, right, to show that it's symbolic, the Amontillado, and Montrador says, true, the Amontillado. So what is it right there, right? What is the Amontillado? Anyway, so then he moves the bones that were pulled out of the way of of this little niche. And again, these are his family's bones, right? And he chucked them all over the floor to cover up his building stone and his mortar, which, I mean, he's planning on chaining Fortunato in the back of the niche, he could have hidden that building stone anywhere in any other niche, anywhere far away, and then just walked it over here when he was ready for it. He put it right in front underneath Bones. It feels like another hint that he's trying to leave for Fortunato to, to maybe pick up on, but which Fortunato misses. So, all right, he starts walling him in. Um, Fortunato sobers up and you know makes a noise that realizes there's something wrong there. And then uh, Poe drags this out beautifully by describing, like naming every tier of bricks that Fort Mo- Montresor lays out to wall in Fortunato. I laid the second tier and the third and the fourth and just on and on and on. So then after four tiers, Fortunato shakes the chain. He's trying to break out, trying to pull the chain off him, trying to squeeze his way out of it, right? And what, is, what does Montresor do? It says the noise lasts for several minutes during which that I might Hearken to it with the more satisfaction I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bones. So he stops to listen and enjoy Fortunato trying to break out of this of this doom. And notice also he sits on the bones. So if he's doing this out of respect for his family name to, to you know to redeem his family honor, he's not treating his family's Actual remains very respectfully. He chucked them on the ground to cover up his bricks and mortar, and then he sits down on top of them to listen to his victim. So, this seems to be a lot more self centered rather than, you know, true, like uh, trying to achieve justice for your family honor. It's really much more about Montresor himself. And then again, slows down, right? Uh, or Poe dragging it out. He says, I finished that interruption the fifth the 6th and the 7th just counting up all the little things that he does and then when he makes it chest height he holds the flambeau inside to look at Fortunato he wants to look him in the face and Fortunato screams and it freaks Montresor out when Fortunato screams as loud as he can it thrusts Montrezor back and then it says for a brief moment I hesitated I trembled so he's freaking out, right? He's not quite this perfect, cold, you know, vengeance machine that's plotted everything out. He's got some emotion here, and this is a tense moment, and he can't quite deal with it. And so he pulls his sword out and starts poking in the recess with it. He's going to stab him because he can't stand the screaming. He can't. He's afraid that you know he's freaked out by this. Maybe he's afraid that Fortunato's going to get out. But then he stops himself. The thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied. So he realizes the wall's too strong. The staples in the wall are too strong. Fortunato can't break out. This is—I'm not in any danger, and I don't have to stab him to make him to make sure he doesn't get away. So then Montresor does the crazy thing, which is he goes up to the wall, I reapproach the wall. I replied to the yells of him who clamored, I re-echoed, I aided. I surpassed them in volume and strength. So he screams back at Fortunato and screams even louder than Fortunato does. Now, obviously there's a point here, which is scream as loud as you want, nobody's ever going to hear you, you're doomed. But also, he doesn't say that, he screams at him. So this is probably the craziest moment for me. This is the moment when when Montresor seems to be as, as unbalanced as he is anywhere in this story. So he goes back to building. He almost gets it done. And then when there's only one stone left and he's got it almost up and halfway into the place where it's going to go, then Fortunato speaks. And he tries to turn this into a joke. Um, he makes a nice appeal because he says, uh, is it not getting late? Right. He says, we'll have many writers laugh about this over the Palazzo, over our wine. And then Montresor says, the Amontillado, I said. Which, of course, is the joke about that's the wine we're going to be drinking. But also, if it's symbolic, what does it mean right there? What does it say right there? Is he saying, like, the Amontillado is my revenge? And you're going to get that instead of what you're saying now? Where we're going to go up and have a joke about this, have a laugh about this in the Palazzo? That's not going to happen. Instead, the Amontillado is going to happen. Anyway. Um, but when Fortunato was talking about it, he says... Is it not getting late? Will not they be awaiting us at the Palazzo, the Lady Fortunato and the rest? So he mentions his wife, right? I'm married. You're making a widow of my wife. Have mercy. Won't they be waiting for us, for us? Which is, won't people know that you were with me? Won't people have seen us together? Won't they come looking for you? And he says, let us be gone. And then Montessor says, yes. Let us be gone. Which is interesting because it's like he's including himself in this destruction. Remember the, the, the coat of arms. The snake is biting the foot, but the foot is crushing the snake. They're both dying. And then that lovely, that beautiful line, for the love of God, Montresor. yes. For the love of God. But what does that mean? Fortunato means have pity on me for the love of God. In the name of your love of God, and just as God loves us, you should be as merciful to me as God would be. And also, you don't want to lose the love of God by committing a mortal sin by murdering me. So, for the love of God, in the name of the love of God, let me go. But then when Montresor says, yes, for the love of God, that's not what he means. It's like, he's saying almost I'm going to kill you now for the love of God. Which is a weird line. But then he doesn't get a reply. And then Fortunato stops speaking. And then this last paragraph has another moment of hesitation for Montresor. He says, I thrust the torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in reply only a jingling of the bells, which maybe, you know, the torch brushed the hat, or maybe that's Fortunato shaking his head and the bells jingling on his hat. And then it says, My heart grew sick on account of the dampness of the catacombs, right? That's such a, oh, sure, no, this is what it is. It's not that I'm freaked out because I'm murdering somebody and it's I'm walling him up and this is a horrible thing to do and I'm having a moment of second thought. No, 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 it's just damp. And so, yeah, that's why I'm bothered. Anyway, and then he hurries. I hasten to make an end of my labor, but I did it. I walled him in. I plastered it up. And then notice, without even changing paragraph, right? These last three lines... Say I plastered it up, I re-erected the old bones, and then for half of a century, no mortal has disturbed them. Rest in peace. Um, and I think that in pace is also an implication of uh, Montresor's impending death. So, like I said, a deathbed confession is how it sounds to me. So, the story reads like a deathbed confession. It's fifty years after the crime, and Montresor is never caught. At least he doesn't say anything about that. We know nothing of the results of his revenge, what happens after this, other than Fortunato was never disturbed. The main thing is, he got his revenge. But there's issues with that. If all he wanted was revenge, why does he set this up so poorly? If Fortunato hadn't been drunk enough to follow along, this never would have worked. That's why the memes. It's ridiculous that Fortunato would go all the way down into the depths of the earth for no good reason, and despite all the warnings and excuses that Montresor offers him. And yet he does. Montresor drops a pile of hints that he's up to no good, and all the way to the very end, it is Fortunato's pride that dooms him. But then when he is humbled at the end, it's not good enough. Montresor has to kill him, even when he no longer wants to. Why? Why does he really do it? If Fortunato had actually injured him a thousand times, then he surely wouldn't trust Montresor, especially now with all these hints. It makes much more sense to see Montresor is simply jealous, and this act the result of Montresor's wounded pride. Fortunato has done well, where Montresor has not, and Montresor has to destroy him for it. Notice, of course, the name Fortunato means fortunate. It means lucky. So... That's why Fortunato has all the things that Montresor wants. That Montrezor maybe used to have or his family used to have and no longer does. And he's jealous that Fortunato has them. Uh, Montrezor's claims of grievance are just window dressing, not just justification for what is actually a truly horrible crime that he commits for completely petty reasons. So here's how I like to think of this story. And it comes back to the you. The you that Montresor is telling the story to. On his deathbed, who knows him so very well. And I think that you is one of two people. It's either a priest who's listening to his confession, or it's God himself. And I feel like because there's so much in here that shows Montresor's pride, that it's God himself. But it would make sense if it was a priest too that knows Montresor and that he's speaking to God through the priest. With the idea of making the same point, so the point is getting to the same place, whether it's directly to God or through God's, you know, voice ears on earth through the priest. But I think this is a dare. Montresor dares Fortunato to figure it out, to catch him, to foil the plot. It never happens. He's not trying to get revenge, or he'd do it in a much more sure way. If nothing else, he'd use a niche closer to the entrance, where Fortunato wouldn't be suspicious, or he'd just clock him over the head, maybe with a big wine bottle, and then drag him back to the niche where he walls him up. If he wants Fortunato awake to suffer through the low wall building, he could surely wait until Fortunato regained consciousness. No, no. His goal here is to make sure Fortunato does this to himself, and that he has as many chances as possible to figure it out and get away from this. So what Montresor is doing is showing that Fortunato is a fool. Like I said, I wonder if he knew that Fortunato would be dressed in Motley and therefore he'd be able to get a, he'd be able to get him in the costume. But whether he knows that or not, whether it's just a wonderful coincidence or not, this is his point. Fortunato is a fool. Fortunato is too proud and too stupid to figure out what Montresor is doing to him. But here's the question: who is Montresor showing this to? If it's Fortunato, if he's trying to make the point to Fortunato, you're an idiot and I'm smarter than you are, it would be better to embarrass him to make him look like a fool in front of witnesses. So that's not it. Is he just trying to win the fight? He doesn't have to murder him to win the fight. He could sucker him in a thousand ways. Obviously, Fortunato is kind of dumb, especially when he drinks and trusts Montresor. So Montresor could fool him and take advantage of him in a thousand ways. He doesn't. He does this, he murders him. So he's making this point to someone else. He's showing someone else how smart he is, how dumb Fortunato is. And he's doing it in a way... I mean, the point of the murder, I feel like, is to get attention. But it's... I mean, whose attention is he getting, right? That's why I think it's God. It's the only one who sees what Montresor does, is God. The only people who know are Fortunato and Montresor and God. So, yeah, maybe he's making the point to Fortunato. Maybe he's making the point to himself. But really, I think he's making it to God. Uh, he's sh- Montresor is showing how clever he is. Now, stupid Fortunato is that if either of them deserve what has or what Fortunato has, it's Montezor. That's the point that I think he's making to God. Fortunato is a flawed vessel. He doesn't deserve God's favor in the fortunate in his name. Montresor should have been the one to be blessed with success and family and everything else I think here at the end of his life Montresor's life when he's doing this confession he's trying to justify his act he's trying to make his point that's the dare he's daring God to accept that Montresor has won this argument by proving his point and to then reward Montresor despite the horrible thing that he did because Montresor's right and he proved that he was right uh That's why I think he says for the love of God at the end. He's actually seeking God's love. He's actually seeking a reward for this murder because he made his point. He wins. He's right. Now, I know it's absurd to to say that, you know, for murdering somebody you get the love of God, but it's not too ridiculous because he is stealing, you can see it as he's stealing Fortunato's birthright. Fortunato is the one who has the blessings of God, the honor of God, and Montresor wants those. But this is Jacob and Esau. This is the story of Isaac uh, and his two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older. They're twins, but Esau is the firstborn, so he's the oldest. He's the one who has the birthright. But Jacob tricks Esau out of the birthright. Um, he, he suckers him. and There's this whole, this whole biblical story about this. And he suckers Isaac too. And Isaac blesses Jacob, thinking that Jacob is Esau. But then he doesn't take it back. Jacob actually gets the blessing and gets to keep the blessing even though he got it through deception and lies and cheating. He gets, Jacob is the one who gets to become Israel. Jacob is the one who founds the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. He's the great patriarch because he does this. So it is possible, at least in the Bible, to steal something and keep it and win and have God's favor because you did it. And so I think there's... Like, I'm not trying to say that story is the story that's being told here, but I'm saying that I feel like Montresor is thinking that just like Jacob pulled this off, I can pull this off. I think it is, uh, what else? There was another, oh, right, another piece of evidence for that is that when it gets to the actual sin, right, the horrible thing that he actually does, because he does murder Fortunato, and, you know, murder is is an unforgivable sin. It's Cain and Abel, right? It's the, the worst sin you can commit. Um, but he, he glosses over that, right? He, he brushes over it in his retelling. He doesn't focus on that, even though that's his final victory. He just skips right past it. He makes sure to mention, I feel like, he makes sure to mention his hesitations, even though if he's trying to show that he's proud of what he's done, he should just say, you know, I did it proudly because I was right. But there's moments when he kind of pulls it back in his own story. So maybe that's just the human side of him coming out, but also it makes him seem less terrible. And then the fact that he doesn't actually murder Fortunato, that he pulls the sword back, that he lets the, that he walls him in to kill him that way. It actually reminds me of Antigone, the third story, the third play in the Greek tragedy series um, of the Oedipus story. Um, In that, and no spoilers, but there is a character in Antigone that is walled up in a cavern, and that is done expressly so that the people who put the victim in the cavern do not actually commit murder, do not directly cause a death. The victim dies of hunger and thirst inside the cavern, not human violent action. They actually put food and water in the cavern too, so that they can't be said to have caused the, per- the person's death. It's the gods who caused the person's death. This feels a lot the same, right? That he walls Fortunato up and leaves him there, and there's also maybe a little hint that Fortunato is already dead when he puts the final brick in place, in which case it's not Montresor's fault at all. He's already dead. It already happened. I mean, he had, you know, a stroke or something. And when he drops the torch in and calls his name, then Fortunato doesn't respond. So, you know, he's just walling up a dead man. He wasn't actually murdering anybody. So, because he focuses, <clears throat> because he shows so much of how much smarter he is than Fortunato and so much of what a fool Fortunato is. And then uh, he, he does, I think a fair number of things to show that the murder at the end is not the real point. It's getting him down there. That's the real point. That's where the focus of the story is that maybe, you know, he can get away with this. Maybe what he did wasn't so bad. Maybe it's understandable. Maybe God will see this Montresor's way. And hey, if God doesn't see this Montresor's way, well, at least Montresor got his revenge and told a hell of a story. In pace requiescat. And may you be at peace too and rest well. I'll see you next time.